Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. Do you have a very uh, pretty drive to church this morning? And uh, I'm, uh, I'm glad that's all uh, that it did. I would love to stay on the schedule uh, that we're on right now up until Easter, if, if we can. Uh, matter of fact, next week, I'm going to tell you up front, and, unless, uh, unless you die between now and next week, don't miss next week. Uh, and if we get a big snowstorm, I'm going to see if we can call the National Guard out or something. Uh, because uh, uh, I had to, to really get two weeks ahead because I'm, I'm leaving Tuesday to go teach a class for the, for the Baptist State Convention. Uh, church planners on Wednesday. And uh, so I was having to work ahead. And I hit one of these situations where, man, I like what's coming up next week so good. I'm having a trouble, you know, with, with this week. It's not that the stuff this week isn't needful. But, uh, man, next week we're going to talk about prophecy. And how prophecy points out that the Bible's true. And there's just kind of stuff there that'll blow your mind, uh, really, when, uh, when you start looking at it. Uh, so you'll be praying uh, about that. We're doing this series because it's really a foundational type series. Um, we say that we believe the gospel of Christ as Christians. Well, guess where we find the gospel at? We find the gospel where? In, in the Bible. So if what we base our eternal destiny upon as Christians is found in the Bible, that means that we need to understand that the Bible is really, really reliable. You know, people can uh, say, well, I'll go experience God out in, in creation and things like that. And, you know, I can too. But uh, unless someone's carved John 3.16 in a tree somewhere, I can't go up on the parkway and, and just have faith in, in the fact that Christ died for me on the cross unless someone's carved it there. We need the Bible, and we need to have the authority of the Bible, and we need to understand the Bible's trustworthy uh, because it's really, really, really important uh, to our faith. Uh, we're living in a time period when uh, people for several years now have been wanting to tear down Christian values. And one of the fastest ways to probably attack Christian values is this. We, we base Christian values, at least this is where it should be based, we base Christian values upon what the Bible has to say. Amen? So, so if they can attack what the Bible has to say and make people start to doubt whether the Bible is authoritative, whether the Bible is true, then in with that, they're trying to erase the very reason why uh, we say we have certain values and we believe that this is true and, and that's not true uh, in, in our lives. Uh, we need to understand the, the battle, and I've tried to say this each week because we just started last week, but uh, probably we'll say this every week. We need to understand that, that the Bible is really, really, really important. And people want to attack the Bible as a way to attack uh, our homes, uh, to attack our families, uh, to attack our churches. And that's why we need to understand how important it is. It's so important that we need to hold it up before our children and before our families and before our churches as being truly, truly the Word of God. Uh, there's all types of uh, uh, skeptics in, in our world. Uh, there's all types of secular reasoning in, in our world, uh, even liberal theologians in our world that just want to deny the Scriptures and try and tear down uh, anyone having any kind of trust or place any kind of validity 
in, in the Bible. And that's why it's really important that we wake up as Christians. It's really important that we understand the need for us saying and for us believing this is absolute truth. Uh, and it's something that's necessary for our lives, for us to apply to our, our lives. Through this series, I'm going to be presenting a lot of logical arguments. Uh, and matter of fact, today I'm going to read some verses counting in just a second. Uh, as we launch in to this message, but you're not going to get a lot of Bible till kind of later on in, in the message. And the reason being, and the reason we're trying to use logic in this series is, is for this. If you're trying to convince someone that's skeptical, someone that's a non-believer, maybe you work with a family member, a friend, or whatever, you're trying to convince them that the Bible is true, while you and I, as believers, if in fact you're a believer, we can agree with what I talked about last week, that the Bible says the Bible is the Word of God. You know, we can accept that, we can believe that, but that's not a foundation for us to use in trying to convince somebody else the Bible is the Word of God. That's why we have to approach it from, from a logical standpoint. Uh, last week, we were looking at kind of a logical reason uh, that the Bible claims to be the Word of God for itself. I told you uh, last week that, that people who want to deny the Bible will even try and tell us that's not right. It's not right for us to try and take the Bible and use what they call circular reasoning to try and say, well, the Bible says this about itself because they're rejecting the truth of the Bible. And they try and say, if we use secular reasoning, saying this is what the Bible says about itself, that's not valid, and we ought to just cast all that aside. Problem with that is this. Christianity is a religion of revelation. In other words, God has revealed himself to us. And I used myself to illustrate it last week. I'll use you to illustrate it this week because I'm a former investigator in law enforcement. I know how to dig up dirt about people, okay? So I could investigate some things about you and find out some things maybe that you would not want me to know. I can do that to a certain degree by investigation. But... There's still some things that I can never, ever find out about you through investigation unless you open up your heart and you tell me yourself what's in your life. That's true of God. There are things that we maybe can find out by investigation about him, but there are massive truths that we cannot find out just by doing research independent of the Bible because God chose to reveal himself to us. So that makes it really a valid reason for us to say we ought to believe the Bible because of what it says about itself. Some 1,500 times the Bible says the Word of God said, or some similar phrase to that, where the Bible is claiming to be the Word of God. You see, we can't have it both ways. Either that is true, that the Bible is the Word of God because it says that about itself some 1,500 times, or we have to just throw all of it away and say, well, no, none of it's true. People want to pick and choose and try and hold on to it being true as a religious book, but not true when it comes to things like history and science. So that's why today we're going to talk about a historical reason to believe the Bible. And that is, in some ways, history confirms the Bible's reliability. Before we do that, let me read to you some things out of Psalm 119. We looked at this last week, but it said, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. As a believer, that gives me the confidence I need to know no matter how much someone might attack the word of God, God's word is okay. It's going to survive. Amen. It goes on and says this, your faithfulness 
endures to all generations. So God is faithful. God is going to preserve his word to all generations to where we have it as a reliable source for our lives. But while that is good for us to say it's fixed in heaven, that doesn't mean that we can kindly go to sleep and, and fail to stand for the word of God in our culture. You and I can't just say, well, God's word's fixed in heaven, so we don't have to worry about it. Yes, we do kind of have to worry about it a little bit because there are people that don't believe it's God's work. And that's why we need to be equipped and prepared where we can, can present it as God's word to someone else. The Bible says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If I'm in a dark place, I want a reliable light to help me see where I'm going. You, you follow the illustration? I shared this, a, 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 I don't know, a couple of years ago. I probably shared it more than once over the years of uh, Pastor Day 3 Church. But several years ago, I was going bow hunting one time over in Wills County, uh, over in the Thurman Chatham Gainland. Someone had been kind enough to kill a couple of rattlesnakes, but they had been unkind enough to leave the rattlesnakes laying beside the path. So on my way to hunt that evening, I see two big rattlesnakes there, which places in my mind, there are rattlesnakes in this place. Okay, I go and hunt, it gets dark on my way out. I remember something. I forgot to check the batteries in my flashlight. And the batteries give out before I get out of those dark woods. So in my mind, because I had seen those two rattlesnakes laying there, every stump, every root, everything I saw on the ground that the moon was highlighting a little bit, that was a rattlesnake. But had I, if, if I had had a reliable, if I'd had a reliable, I'm, I'm sorry about that, talking about snakes. That's a private joke. She doesn't like them very much. But... Uh, <laughs> But, but had I had a reliable light, I, I wouldn't have had to be as skeptical about where I'm walking. So I, I want a reliable light. Well, you and I need a reliable light for our lives. Amen? And we need to understand that it's reliable so we can base our, our lives upon it. Not just our eternal destiny, but the choices we make in everyday life. We need to, to, to base upon what the Bible has to say. Also, we're told this in Psalm 119, the sum of your word is truth in every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So as a believer, we have no problem with that. We believe the Bible is God's word, but a lot of people don't. And we assume sometimes that everybody believes the Bible like we do, but that's not the case. And that's why we need to spend time equipping ourselves and challenging ourselves to be better prepared to, uh, to, to defend the Bible, to show people that you can trust in, in the Bible. Our second reason this morning that we had on the screen a moment ago is a historical reason. There's some historical reasons why we can believe the Bible. Because in some ways, history and things like archaeology give us evidence that the Bible is true. Now, as we go through this, I want to approach you to begin with from the negative. So please hear this. I don't want you to hear what I'm about to say and go away from here this morning and say, no, the pastor said this is what we ought to believe. No, I'm telling you right now what secular scholars believe, what liberal theologians believe to a great degree. It's not what you ought to believe, but there's a reason why I want us to focus upon what they believe. They have a historical standard. They have this historical standard that's required by them, by secular and liberal scholars. They have really two primary 
uh, standards that we're going to talk about, two non-negotiables in their mind uh, concerning the Bible. Here's the first one. Secular and liberal scholars believe none of the Bible can be accepted as true without independent, and that means outside the Bible, the stuff we talked about last week, they want to throw away, without independent historical or archaeological confirmation. So a, a, a liberal scholar, a secular scholar, they're saying we will only accept the parts of this that have been confirmed independently in history or by some type of archaeological find. Now hold on to that because that will matter in a few minutes when we start talking about what we ought to believe. Now here's the problem with that. I want you to think logically again for a minute. How logical is it for us to only believe this based upon what a secular source has to say? You, you recognize what I'm saying? Because a secular scholar is approaching the Bible with a predetermined mindset that the Bible's not true. So how fair is it for us to try and accept what they want us to accept as their standard, that you can only believe this if it's been proved by history or if it's been proved by archaeology. That's the only parts of it you can believe. To me, that's an unfair standard because they're applying a standard toward the Bible in a way that they want it to fall to begin with. They want it to fail. So it's not logical for us really to use that type of argument. Let me give you an example of that. For years and years and years, uh, liberal theologians and, and the secular scholars, they deny the existence of King David. It was as though he, he doesn't exist. And the reason they were saying that, they did not have any archaeological evidence up to a certain point that King David ever existed. Then they came into a problem. <laughs> During an archaeological dig, they discovered two inscriptions to David being the king of Israel. So you understand the problem they have now. They're being trapped into their own standard. We will only accept as true what can be proven by archaeology or history. Then someone finds some inscriptions that says King David is real. Now I want you to use your, use your mind just a little bit and think logically again. Why would it be that they would have been so energetic at trying to deny the existence of King David? Jesus Christ, his lineage comes through who? King David. So if you can attack the very existence of King David, and with that, you are also trying to attack the Messianic line. <laughs> and with that, you're also trying to attack the, the truth of the Bible in regards to Jesus. Now, the second non-negotiable for them is this. Secular or liberal theologians or scholars, they do not accept any miracle whatsoever to have really occurred in the Bible. So, so to illustrate that, since now there's historical evidence that King David is real, they would accept that King David is real. But when you get into passages to where an angel, for instance, appeared to King David and that angel's going out as a destroyer, they'll say, no, that didn't ever happen. 
We don't believe that happened because that's a miracle. We'll accept now that King David is real, but we will not accept anything that's in the miraculous realm that happened in his life. All that's still a fairy tale is, is the way they want to approach it. They, they are always looking for some type of physical reason that a miracle could have happened. Let me give you another illustration of that, an example of it. They, instead of accepting the fact that Moses and the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea, they said there's an error in what the scribes were writing because the word red and the word read is so similar in the Hebrew. They say that the scribe meant to write read. In other words, it's like a marsh out there with reeds growing up instead of red sea. A reed sea, you and I can walk through without any problem. Now, once again, I have some theological problems with them claiming that. Here's one. The Bible said the Red Sea parted and the children of Israel went over on dry land. (laughs) Not through a muddy marsh, they went over on dry land. So that's a problem in what they're trying to say, what liberal theologians will try and say. I have another problem, and that is that the Bible also says Pharaoh's army was drowned in the midst of the sea. I've shared this, I know, at least one time in the past, but I read a story once uh, about this um, Bible student uh, being in Bible college, and he had this liberal professor. And the liberal professor was making this point, saying it wasn't the Red Sea, it was really supposed to be the Reed Sea. And he knew how conservative this particular Bible student was. So it was like he was trying to, you know, kind of put him down some by, by saying, no, it's not the Red Sea, it's the Reed Sea. Well, this old boy that didn't know any better than just to believe the Bible was sitting over there, and he started acting happy about it. And he said, did you not hear, the professor said, did you not hear what I said? It wasn't the Red Sea, it was a Reed Sea. And he said, yeah, but that's a bigger miracle than I ever thought. God drowned the whole Egyptian army in a mud puddle. (laughs) But, But they'll try and come up with all types of excuses for not believing the Bible's true or for how a miracle could have taken place. Some liberal scholars even continue to reject Jesus even being an historical figure. They believe Jesus really didn't exist. Now, I'll show you some evidence to the contrary in a few minutes, but they believe he really did not exist. And here's why. The same reason that they used about King David. We have not found any inscriptions of him independent of the Bible. Now, that causes them to fold their hand, to show their hand a little bit to you, what their motives are. In other words, because we've not found anything independent of the Bible, we're not going to believe that Jesus is real. But by their standard, what they're doing is this. They're throwing away all the parchments, all the evidence of all the copies of the scriptures that have been found down through time. They're trying to set aside those ancient documents, and they're saying that doesn't really count because we've not found it inscribed on a tomb or something like that. So that lets you know what their mindset is to begin with. So that's enough of the negative stuff. That, that's the stuff you don't believe, but that's the stuff people do believe in the world. And that's why we need to know how to approach them. And we need to be prepared for that in, in our own walk of faith. So let's 
go on and let's talk about the historical evidence that supports the Bible being true. Because there's a lot of historical evidence, a lot of archaeology that has proven the Bible to be true. And uh, I'll just have to kind of sit down a minute and read some of these facts to you for you to, to, to think about. We didn't put all of them on the screen today. You don't need to really record them all. If you want them all, send me an email. I'll send you the whole sermon document uh, to where you'll have it uh, to, to look at. Uh, I, I will point this out. There's a, there's a review that comes out, um, a periodical that comes out called the Biblical Archaeology Review. And uh, you can uh, sign up for that. And almost on a monthly basis, they're given new information about how the Bible has been proven true by, by archaeology. Uh, so it's something good for you to try and, to try and look at and all. So anyway, as we think about uh, how there's this historical evidence that the Bible is true, let's start with the Old Testament to begin with. The Old Testament to begin with. And, and let me give you a definition when you think about um, archaeology in terms of the Bible. There's other ways to think of it. But in terms of the Bible, here's what it means. A study based on excavation, decipherment, and critical evaluation of the records of the past as they affect the Bible. So that's the type of, of archaeology that we're, that we're talking about uh, th- this morning. Uh, there have not been, to my knowledge or to any research that I could find, There have not been any, there's not any archaeological evidence that disproves what the Bible has to say. Now, every now and then you'll come out with some radical. They they had this happen a couple years ago. Somebody said, well, you know, we found the house of Jesus and, and he lived there to old age and we found his family and stuff. Well, people who were renowned, authentic Scientists and archaeologists, even though they don't believe the Bible, they debunked that and said they shot it full of holes. You know, that wasn't really the home of Jesus that they found. That wasn't really the bones of Jesus that they found. So there's not been any that completely disprove the Bible, but there have been a lot that prove the Bible. Now, when we're thinking about archaeology, you need to understand something. There, there's an inherent problem here. And and that's one reason why I don't think you'll ever have all the Bible proven by history or archaeology. Number one, God wants us to accept it by faith. Amen? But number two, you can't dig up all the Middle East. I mean, you can't just go over there and excavate the whole place. They have to get permission even to do the digs that they they have in, in certain areas. And then they're doing that based on the best research that they have and the best hunches that they have. But you can't dig it all up, so they're never going to find all of it. I mean, that's true even in America. We couldn't go out in America and dig up all the archaeological evidence of the American Indians. We can find parts of it, signs of it, things like that, but we're never going to find all of it. Why? It's buried in the ground somewhere. Even when you find some of it, It's broken many times, or it's deteriorated in such a way that it's really hard to decipher and really hard to read. So I'm just pointing out up front that you'll never ever fully, fully, fully prove the Bible is true by archaeology, but it has proven the Bible to be true in many areas. There's a Christian apologist and scientist by the name of Dr. Henry Morris, and he said this, it must be extremely significant 
that in view of the great mass of corroborative evidence, there exists today not one unquestionable find of archaeology that proves the Bible to be an error at any point. Now, let me share with you just about the Old Testament. We'll get to the new in a minute. Let me share with you several things about the Old Testament concerning history and archaeology. First one is this. The people, places, and events mentioned in the Bible have been found exactly where the Bible said they'd be located. The, the Hebrew scribes are recognized even by liberal scientists as being some of the most detailed historians that lived in the Middle East. There, there have been multiple versions of the creation story across different cultures there in the Middle East. The Bible, however, the, the version of the Bible gives a straightforward explanation. Some of the other cultures put these weird embellishments to it. So even historians and archaeologists say the most direct, most simple definition is the one that you lean to. And the Bible gives the most simple, straightforward explanation of, of the creation story. Not only that, but the, the flood, the, the worldwide flood and the flood taking place is found in 33 different cultures, most of them around the region of the Middle East. Sometimes the story may be just a little bit different. Once again, the Bible, without any apology, gives a straightforward definition of the flood. And many of those versions of the flood talks about a man building a boat, <laughs> preparing for a flood that was going to be on the way. There's a monument describing the Tower of Babel, which, by the way, was found in the Ur of the Chaldees, which, by the way, is the homeland of Abraham. And they found a monument there that describes the Tower of Babel taking place. There's also been archaeological evidence found that supports the story of Abraham rescuing Lot and going in and rescuing him from those invading kings. Liberal scholars claim for years and years and years that the Hittites that are talked about in the Bible did not exist. They said that it's just mythical. There's no such a people or group as the Hittites. We've never found any evidence of them. And then they have a problem because on earth they find 10,000 tablets, clay tablets by the Hittite culture that revealed to them the city they found the 10,000 tablets just so happened to be the capital of the Hittites. <laughs> So, so now they're having to admit, you see, their own standard is trapping them. You can only believe what can be proved independently of the Bible. Okay, you didn't believe the Hittites. Now there's 10,000 clay tablets that have been unearthed in their home city. The walls of Jericho have been excavated, not all of it, but a good portion of it. Normally when you have an invading army attack a wall city, which way will the walls fall? They'll fall from the outside in. The problem is this city that they're pretty sure is the original location of Jericho, the walls, a lot of them fall from the inside out. Recently, they've discovered during a dig in real recent current events, I think it was 2015, 
they're still excavating part of the city of Jericho, and they found a house that's against the wall that's still standing. It's like kind of everything else is gone and the wall's down, but there's this house that's still standing against the wall. Anybody remember the story of Rahab the harlot? Her house was against the wall. She was promised safety whenever the army came in to evade because she hid those Israelites when they came in to spy out the city. And now they have found a house. Oh, there's not a sign there that says, this is Rahab the harlot's house. But to me, logically, it sounds like it could be, doesn't it, to you, when it's there against the wall and everything else seems to have been destroyed in that city except that house. Solomon's reign, King Solomon's reign, uh, liberal theologians would reject the possibility that he could have had that degree of wealth. And they thought it was laughable that he was supposed to have thousands and thousands of horses and thousands and thousands of chariots until they have excavated in one of the cities that's referred to as one of the chariot cities. And they have excavated an area that has thousands and thousands of horse stalls and thousands and thousands of location for chariots. They see they're getting trapped in. Liberal theologians are getting trapped in by by their own criteria that it has to be proved by by archaeology and it has to be proved by, by history in the past. One of the most important finds that you've heard about before is the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in March of 1947. There's this shepherd that was out looking for a lost goat. And, he, and he's looking around in, in these caves that he came across, wondering if the lost goat might have gone in there. But you see, he's trying to figure out whether he ought to really go in or not, and how far he ought to go in. So he picks up a rock and he throws the rock back in the cave, trying to hear how far it might be before the rock hits something. When he throws it, he hears something break. So he decides to go in to investigate. And he finds these clay jars that have the Dead Sea Scrolls, the parchments there, that they have now tested in those parchments were in those caves for 2,000 years in an environment that helped to preserve them. When they started looking at those scrolls, it has some of the best textual evidence of Isaiah that has ever been found in the book of Isaiah. And with it, it tells about a coming Messiah. Can you say amen to that? As I th- studied that this past week and I thought about it, I also thought about this. That shepherd was out looking for a lost goat. It was a shepherd that found the Dead Sea Scrolls as he was looking for a lost goat. I couldn't help but think of a shepherd that came looking for a lost me. Amen? And a lost you. And, and, and found you. Now, now, that's just some Old Testament there, there's too much in the New Testament for us to go in that much detail. But let me give you some New Testament archaeological evidence. Luke's story about the birth of Christ was doubted for years and years and years. Like that wasn't true. It's not really the way it happened. That's not a true story. The foundation of them trying to reject it was this. Luke says that Quirinius was governor at the time of Jesus' birth. But they had archaeological evidence showing that Quirinius was the governor years after Jesus was born. 
So the liberal scholars are pointing that. See, see, that's evidence. That's evidence that what Luke wrote wasn't true. Well, there's a man by the name of William Ramsey, and he was a noted historian who set out in archaeologists who set out to disprove Luke's gospel. In other words, he's not over in the Middle East saying, I want to prove this is true. He's over there saying, I want to prove it's not true. And in particular, he was trying to disprove the gospel of Luke. But along the way in his research, in his archaeological digs, you want to know what he found out? He found an inscription that said, Quirinus, that was the governor years after Jesus was born, has served as the governor twice. And he was also the governor at the time when Jesus was born. And later on, this archaeologist and historian who set out trying to disprove Luke said this, Luke's history is unsurpassed in trustworthiness. You understand how important that is? It's not a disciple trying to defend the faith. It's not some Christian out trying to find evidence that the Bible is true. If someone at the very fiber of his being wanted to tear down the validity of the gospel of Luke, instead he's so confronted with the evidence that he says, man, that's trustworthy. That's authentic. That's something we need to believe in. Historians also wanted to reject Pilate as being a historical figure. Problem is, they have now unearthed something called the Pilate Stone that was found in Caesarea that proves his existence. They wanted to disavow the fact that Herod was really king at that time, and that Herod really ruled at any point in time. And they wanted to discount Herod's palace. The problem with that is, in 2015, they have now unearthed what they are pretty much sure is a palace of Herod. There's an altar that was discovered also during an archaeological dig in Athens. And the altar said this, to the unknown God. You remember Paul reading that? Paul seeing that? Paul using that as an argument as he presented the gospel to the people of Athens? He said, you've got a monument out here that's to the unknown God. Let me tell you who he is. And they've now found that to be exactly true. What about some New Testament textual evidence? Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we talked about that a lot last week. Remember all the copies, uh, various copies of the manuscripts I told you? There's almost 6,000 copies, not full manuscripts, but, but, but pieces and parts that's within, and some of them are within a hundred years of the, of the death of Jesus. It, it being that near to the, to the time frame. And a lot of other ancient documents that people look to all the time, like the writings of Aristotle or, uh, you know, whoever it might be and, and, and saying, oh, that's true. And there's only very few copies. And those copies were like a thousand years after the original would have been written. Here's something that uh, a man who was um, a librarian and historian in, in, the, uh, in the British Museum said, in no other case is the interval of time between the composition of the book and the date of the earliest known manuscript so short as that of the New Testament. The interval between the dates of the original composition and the earliest existing evidence becomes so small that in fact it is negligible. In other words, it's not important enough. 
they have proven that in this, any of the small variations in the manuscripts, and most of those are caused by a misspelled word or the word order or the addition of the scribe putting in an explanatory word or phrase, none of that affects any doctrine that the Bible teaches. And then the New Testament writers, they claim to be eyewitnesses of it. Let's focus on that just for a minute. They claim to be eyewitnesses that they they saw what they're writing about. John would all the time write about himself, counting the second person. And he does that here. When he writes he, he's really talking about himself. John says, he who saw it has borne witness and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. That's the testimony that John gives. John saying, I'm an eyewitness, and I know I'm telling the truth. I know what I saw, and I'm telling it in a way that you can believe. In the beginning of Luke's gospel, we have a, a different type of eyewitness event because Luke is an investigator. I told you last week he was a physician. Look at what he writes here about his investigation. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. He's talking about the people from the beginning in the ministry of Christ, the other disciples that were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. In other words, Luke said, I'm writing down exactly what I've been told. He said, I've investigated this. He was like an investigative reporter for God. And he's writing down exactly what the eyewitnesses had told him. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may certainly, uh, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke says, I've investigated it, I've recorded it, I've written it down exactly as the eyewitnesses told me. The Apostle Paul, as he is writing about the resurrection of Jesus in Corinthians, I want you to notice what he says. Then he, talking about Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Now catch this part. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, which means some had died. Now here's what Paul's saying. Paul's defending the resurrection of Christ. And he's saying, by the way, Jesus appeared to 500 at one time. Most of them are still alive. If you don't believe me, you can go talk to them. They're the ones that saw it. So he's given textual evidence here that the Bible is true. What about some other external evidence that the New Testament is true? There's a guy by the name of Josephus. Josephus wasn't recognized to be a follower of Christ. He's not recognized to be a Christian or anything at the point in time when he was writing. And Josephus writes this. It's like he's recording history for his day and time. At this time, there's a wise man called Jesus. And his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and die. But those who had become his disciples, did not abandon his discipleship. In other words, just because he was condemned to die, they didn't quit following Jesus. 
They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his resurrection and that he was alive. That's just a Jewish historian. No reason to try and defend the gospel. No reason as a believer trying to defend the fact that Jesus is a true historical figure. And yet he records it. So once again, the skeptics are starting to put themselves into a corner. You can only believe it if it's proved independent of the Bible. You can only believe it if it's proved in history. You can only believe it if it's proved by archaeology. And time and time and time and time again, they're being trapped by what they themselves have as their own standard. The Bible's geography, the Bible's chronology, its description of the rise and fall of empires, all confirm with the data of secular history. If the Bible is reliable in those matters where it can be tested, then that gives us the faith we need, the evidence we need to believe that the Bible is also reliable in the areas we can't test. The areas of faith, the the, the areas of God revealing himself to us. Now I want to close by giving you a warning. Warning. Here's the last main point today, warning. The warning is this. We cannot separate the historical and the doctrinal truth of the Bible. Some people will do that. They'll try to do that. There have been people when they're confronted with with something scientific that they believe is scientific or historical that they believe might be historical, that's maybe denying the truth of the Bible, then people tend to want to go down this pathway. They say, well, it really doesn't matter because the Bible is a religious book. It's not an historical book. But you see, we can't go down that path. And there's some really, really important reasons we cannot afford to go down that path. Now, now before I, I, I state that, I, I want to I communicate to you how we need to be honest when we're defending the Scriptures. All of us, the staunchest believer among us, you need to be willing to readily admit that not all the Bible has been proven by history or archaeology. Can't talk this morning. And you see, it probably never will be for the reasons I said earlier. You can't dig it all up. You can't find it all. So it probably never, ever will be. So if someone comes up to you and, and they're trying to tear down your faith or attack the Bible, and, and you try and respond back to them, oh, history's proven the Bible is true. Archaeology has proved completely that the Bible is true. If you do that, you're going to lose your integrity with that person because you have just lied to them. Because that's not the case. But what is the case for us as believers, even though it's not all been proven, here's what I believe. I believe if all the facts could be discovered, if you could dig it all up, it all would be proven true. You see. But that's a statement of faith. It's been proven true up to this point by what history has discovered, by what archaeology has discovered. And if somehow we could get all the facts, I believe it would prove all of it's true. But we can't argue with someone else and say, oh, it's all been proven. Because by doing so, you lose your integrity. We, we, need, we need to be honest and transparent with people. And, and don't throw a smoke cloud just trying to defend your faith. 
I, I didn't realize maybe until several years ago how important that is. I, I told you guys last week, and I told you today to pray for me as I get ready to go teach this class to some you know, young, young church planners, and I'm going to be talking to them about how to, how to communicate in, uh, in, in this day and time. And one of the things I want to really camp out on with them is this, that when we're dealing with millennials and, and, and other generations coming up behind the millennials, they're looking for authenticity. They don't want something that's fake. And when they, when they go in, into a church and everybody acts like they're just fine, that's why you don't need to come to church and somebody ask you how you're doing. You say, oh, I'm fine. Hey, if you've had a bad week, tell them. Maybe they need to pray for you. Amen? They, they need to understand that someone's being real and authentic. And they've been to too many churches and maybe a pastor get up and act like he's perfect and he has no problems whatsoever. I kind of fell into this one because I was just using a few years ago uh, trying to be lighthearted, just to re-grab people's attention during a, a sermon. One Sunday I was talking about road rage and, and I was on my motorcycle and somebody cut me off and, and I, I told everybody, I, I threw my hand up, I waved, I kept all my fingers together, you know. It was a full hand. I, I didn't tell them they were number one or anything like that. But I was being honest. I got frustrated. You know, somebody cut me off and I, and I threw my hand up like that. I'll be honest with you. I have yelled at people before when they did that, trying to get their attention. Not custom or anything like that, but I yelled at them when they do that. You want to know why? Because I'm human. And after I told that story, someone came up that I really, really respected that was in, in church that Sunday. And they said, you don't know how huge that is. Because people don't hear that at most churches. They need to hear you being transparent. And hopefully by me being transparent, you will be transparent. Because it, it's a huge thing. Here's why I want to convince these, these young pastors that planting churches. When the unchurched come in here, and if they get a sense that we think we are better than they are, or if they get a sense that we think we don't have any problems and that we're perfect in some way, they're going to feel like they're misfits and they shouldn't be here, when the truth of the matter is this, we're all misfits and none of us should be here. Amen? Except by God's grace and God's mercy. That's why we need to be transparent. Now, I know I just ran a rabbit, but I ran it intentionally for a reason. We also need to be transparent and honest when we're trying to defend the Bible. Don't throw out stuff that's not true. You will lose your integrity. You'll lose a chance maybe to get that person to Jesus if you start trying to throw out something to them that is not true at all. Now, that being said... We have to really admit, as I said a moment ago, the Bible's not being completely proven, but we also as believers need to believe that the Bible is the Word of God and that if all the historical facts could be known, the Bible would be completely correct. That's my theological stance. And here's the reason for that, and here's why we need to take this warning that we can't separate the historical and the doctrinal. Because the historical and the doctrinal are so woven together in Scriptures you can't pull it apart without destroying the doctrinal part. Moses that I talked about earlier in the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea, if that's not a true historical event, how do I know 
that the Bible is true when it tells me Moses on top of the Mount Sinai, I got the Ten Commandments from God. You, you see the, the problem that's there? Jesus being crucified, dying on the cross, is a very, very important historical event. But I'll tell you what, it's much, 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 much more than that because it has huge theological meaning and doctrinal meaning for us because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. It is more than just an historical event. It's an historical event that is reinforcing a spiritual event, doctrinal truth that we need to hold on to. And we can't afford to go down the pathway of starting to dissect the Bible and say, well, you know, it really doesn't matter if, if it's not all historically true because it's a book about religion anyway. And I'm telling you, don't ever go down that path because it is important that it's historically true. Because if it's not true there, how do we know it's true doctrinally? You understand the point that I'm making? Let me give you a couple of examples of how closely tied together the history is with the spiritual, the historical or the physical with the spiritual. In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, who came to him by night, who's asking Jesus questions about salvation, and Jesus is using this imagery of being born again. And Nicodemus is having problems with that. He, he's thinking, can I go back in my mother's womb and be born again? So he's having problems with it. Look what Jesus told him. If I had told you earthly things, in other words, a, a birth, he's using that as an example, an illustration. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe it if I tell you heavenly things? Do you see the connection that Jesus draws? Between the physical and the spiritual, between the earthly and the heavenly? In Mark's gospel, there's a story about some men trying to get a friend of theirs to Jesus. It was noised about that Jesus was in the house. And the crowd was there filling the house up so much you couldn't even get in the door. So they had to tear the roof up to get him down to Jesus, which, by the way, is a good implication for us. Guys, if we would noise around in this community, this world around us, that Jesus is in the house, people will come here. They won't come for Lynn Parsons. They won't come for you. But if they, if they think Jesus is really here, they'll come. They tear the roof up and they get this man lowered down on his bed, which in that day and time was more or less a mat. And when they see their faith, Jesus looks at this paralytic, this paralyzed man. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. As soon as he does that, the religious crowd's over here thinking, how dare Jesus do that? Nobody can forgive sins but God. And they were starting to, to criticize in their mind and be critical in their hearts that Jesus had told this man, your sins be forgiven you. So Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, here's what Jesus did. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were saying their question in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceiving, you got ahead of me, guys. Okay. Uh, immediately Jesus per- perceiving in his spirit what they were thinking in themselves, a question in themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Now look what he does. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and take up your bed and walk? But you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, which is spiritual. 
He says to the paralytic, he, he does a physical miracle here. I say to you, rise up, take your bed and go home. And he rose up immediately, picked up his bed, went before them, went out before them all, said they're all amazed and they glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Now here's the point. Jesus says, what's easier to tell somebody your sins are forgiven you or to tell somebody to rise up and walk? Here's the point he's making. It's easy to say your sins are forgiven you. Have you ever seen the sins leave the body of somebody? I've not. I mean, had you been there the the day that I received Christ as my Savior, you wouldn't have seen my sins depart in some way physically where you could have seen that. So it'd be really easy for us to say, or for Jesus or somebody else to say, your sins are forgiven you, but what evidence do you have of it? So Jesus said, in order that you might know what I just said is true, I'm going to tell this man that's paralyzed, get up and walk, and he did, and the man gets up and walks out. So Jesus connects the physical with the spiritual. And in the same way, we cannot afford as believers to try to even start going down the pathway at all of saying, well, it really doesn't matter if the Bible's true when it comes to history because it's a book about religion. Here's just what I believe. When God speaks, when the Bible speaks, it's just as reliable in the physical, historical realm as it is in the religious realm. The warning I'm giving you is simply this. Well, that's why we can't make the mistake of separating out the two in an effort to make the Bible just a religious book. We need the Bible to be true in the realm of history to give us additional evidence in the realm of theology. If you separate out the two and you go down the path of the Bible not being true in the historical realm, you're laying an untrustworthy foundation for the doctrinal realm. The the Bible must be reliable about the things of this earth if we expect the Bible to be reliable about the things of heaven. That's why we need to heed that warning. So all I've done this morning is even by the the criteria, by the standards of skeptics, of, of secular scholars, of liberal theologians, You can only believe the part of the Bible that's been proven independently. It's not all been proven independently, but a ton of it has been. And I believe if you could dig it all up and find all the evidence, it would prove out all the Bible to be true. I'm sorry if you don't like that. That's just where my faith is. My faith's not in logic. My faith is in God being true to us and God revealing himself to us. We see in all kinds of evidence that the Bible is true. But I want to give you the same warning that I did last week. And I may give this warning every week. Look with me at what John also writes here. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets... And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. Jesus talking about himself. He's seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. 
Here's the warning I want to give you. In this series, I'm going to give a lot of logical arguments. I told you the first of the message today. That's necessary for us to be equipped to share our faith, to defend our faith, to help prove the Bible to people that don't believe it's the Word of God because it doesn't wash for them. Do you say, the Bible says it's the Word of God. That's why we need to have all these other logical arguments and evidence that we can give people that the Bible is indeed the Word of God. But here's the warning. Logic alone will not save you. We have to be drawn by the Holy Spirit of God to have faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit convicts our hearts that we're sinners and we can't save ourselves. The Holy Spirit convinces us, not with logic, but with faith, that Jesus, in fact, died on the cross for our sins. And it's when we exercise that faith in Christ, that's when God saves us. He draws us and He saves us. Let's pray. Father, Lord, there's someone here today that's skeptical and they've been refusing to accept your Bible as being true, refusing to believe in the gospel of Christ. Father, I pray that somehow through today's message and Lord through this series if they continue to come and I pray that we'll through this series you'll help to convince them logically that the Bible is the word of God but father we ask you to bring the person that's skeptical beyond just the realm of logic to the realm of faith and they will feel you drawing them to yourself and give them the faith they need to say yes to Jesus. Lord, as believers, we thank you for the evidence that you give us. Father, I want to thank you this week for the additional reminders you've given me as I've looked at prophecy toward next week's sermon. Father, I want to thank you for how you have reminded me and how you've caused my faith to just blow up even larger as I've looked at prophecy. So Father, I pray in this series you'll increase the faith of those that already know you. And God, equip us to go and live our faith out in this world, in a skeptical world, in a secular world. Not to do it in an adversarial way, but to do it in a, in a, in a loving, compassionate way that still stands for the truth of your word. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. I invite you to stand if you feel God speaking to you, especially as a, as a non-believer. If you've never really trusted Christ, we invite you to come. If you need to come as a believer and say, God, thank you. Thank you for increasing my faith. Thank you for giving me more reasons to believe. Do that. Deal with him during this time. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church. Experience a new day in your life.